And there's actually some techniques that we've used in our local area that have been wildly successful that I'm not sure other people have thought about. So there are fundraising agencies that support mental health um, that will fund mental health programs for different people for different issues. And a lot of them have become partners with us and will actually pay for our clients to see us. And uh, we've gone to those fundraisers, we've met with those individuals, run those organizations, and we've just kind of built partnerships with us. And now they pay for some of our clients to go with us. And it can be uh, based on uh, socioeconomic status, it can be based off of religion or faith, it can be based off of other factors. Um, we also just flat out uh, coach our clients who are coming in during the intake who says, I don't know if I can afford this. We also just coach them, hey, are you faith-based? They say, yes. We go, go ask your church to see if they'll supplement to support it. I don't think I've ever seen a church say no. They, they pretty much always say yes. Like the church will pay for part of their therapy. I have literally never seen them say no. And that might just be a regional thing out here. I also have, and I think this is a tradition that's kind of been passed down because of maybe somebody started it and then it got heard of, because I'm not telling people about this. It's not crazy unusual for a former client to ask to pay for a random person's therapy without knowing who they are. So a, a well-off client will then pay for somebody else's later. They want to be a part of somebody else's journey. They don't get to know anything, you know, unless yeah. they sign some sort of ROI, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but they want to sponsor financially somebody else. And um, so we have- Joshua, like that, see positions. what, I, so I scratch my head and I keep cutting you <laughs> off because I, I there are positive outcomes from this and I just don't know why these companies don't, hey, look, this can help. The preventative stuff can help. That right. can save you money down the road. Why don't you, you know, why don't they do yeah. it? We have, we have large companies that you would know the name of that are based out here that pay for their employees to come get neurofeedback out of the cash. They pay for it cash. You would know the name of the company. No kidding. <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> and, and it's part of it is they just have, they have a mental health subdivision in their company that, that actually directs funds to pay for uh, mental health programs that aren't covered by insurance. And they identified us as worthwhile. And, and part of that's just like giving speaking engagements. Uh, also, just like if let's say one of the individuals who runs the company or their family member by coincidence sees you and you do good work. Yeah. Well, now you're in. That's it. You know, uh, you know, because it, it, it unlocks a whole new track for your company. And, and I said, like, like, just like with getting uh, a more influential person or a more talented person to start lobbying for us. That just happens in corporations. Now, all these corporations are unlocked and they might partner with you. Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. My name is Pete, and today we have a very, very special guest. Joshua Moore, owner of Alternative Behavioral Therapy in Vancouver, Washington. But before we get to the show, we are supported by listeners and businesses just like Joshua's Alternative Behavioral Therapy. Hey, Joshua, thank you for helping us out, man. You're one of the early adopters uh, in the early days to help us get going. So thank you. My pleasure. And then here's a few more of our supporters. We got some Patreon love to dish out. We are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated. The creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, check it out. Applied Neuroscience is having a workshop September 10th and 11th in Florida, Madura Beach, Florida. 
Hey, two ways you can participate. You can attend the workshop or you can do it remotely through TeamViewer or click on the link here, appliedneuroscience.com slash attend-ng-workshops. Hey, check it out. Dr. Thatcher is inviting everybody that attends to his house for a cookout. Sign up now. It's going to be a blast. Woohoo! If you have any questions, email QEEG at AppliedNeuroscience.com. Join us. Hey, thanks to our silver supporters, Mary Tracy's awesome QEEG training program at EEGStrategies.com and Mind Media's Nexus EEG Amplifier. Welcome aboard, Erwin. They're at MindMedia.com. Joshua, for the new listeners and watchers uh, out there, please tell us about your practice and your background. Vancouver, Washington, that is like almost Oregon, right? Yeah, we're about uh, two exits from Portland, Oregon. So uh, we we just typically explain that we're from Portland, uh, so people don't think we're Canadian, because <laughs> that's what's going to happen. <laughs> and or they're going to think we're from D.C., and so nothing nothing works ever. <laughs> oh, you're definitely not from D.C. You're definitely not from D.C. Well, you're a veteran. Thank you for your service. Okay. You're very involved with PTSD, but uh, just just touch a little bit on that. How long were you in service? Uh, I was active for about four years. Uh, I spent some time in the reserves. I was an orthopedic medic, combat medic, and a healthcare specialist. Um, my, my main thing that I did was I did the life flights in DC, uh, frontline medical receiver, uh, so we did life flight medical triage, you know, after that, they just don't give you any interesting jobs after that. They kind of let you sit outside of a track and you watch people run around in circles and you, you kind of do PT first aid for the rest of your career and manage people. And they, they load you up with a bunch of awards and then you're done. Nothing interesting ever happens to you again. So I decided it was time to get out. Uh, my, my three years of nursing school, uh, did not transfer, uh, <laughs> and so I decided it was time to switch things up. Uh, I was a drug and alcohol counselor before I joined the military. I was the child of a psychotherapist who was pretty active and well-published, pretty uh, proficient public speaker, uh, would travel quite a bit for speaking purposes. And so I decided to go into mental health because that was something that I'd been around my whole life. Most of my friends were children of therapists who became therapists. And so I thought I'd be one of those. And <laughs> neurofeedback uh, found me shortly after I made that decision. And your practice, there's another more in the practice. Tell us about... Uh... Yes. <laughs> so my wife, Michelle Moore, also yeah. practices neurofeedback. Uh, we both met as drug and alcohol therapists. After I joined the military, uh, we got together. So when I started studying, me, uh, studying as a uh, graduate student in as a therapist, uh, we both started together. We both uh, started practicing neurofeedback or studying neurofeedback. And, and how long ago was that about? Uh, I think 2009, I think is when we first started. Okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. We started you... under Dr. Lisa Black. Got it. Some people okay. know her. She's, she's a little quiet, but, but she's been around a long time. So you, you'll see people like you know, Jay Gunkelman brighten up when we, we say her name right, because right, they're, right. they're old friends. So going back to opening up the practice, can you give any, any advice to any uh, new people out there that are, you know, they're psychologists, they want to add yeah. uh, EEG to their practice? Uh, what, what did you learn? Uh, uh, so I have, a, I have a very strong opinion on this. And, and yeah, so I think that most people who come into the field probably were a client first 
<clears throat> you know, you, you witnessed it, maybe firsthand experience. That's not a bad way to go. I know that from uh, the BCIA, a lot of times, I think you have to have experienced the ability to respond to neurofeedback. That's actually part of the uh, mentoring agreement, which I'm, I'm BCIA. Uh, I, have a, I have my BCN as well. I recommend that if you're paying for neurofeedback as a client, that when you're moving through into training, you know, in addition to workshops, just get a mentor and continue paying somebody to uh, not just hook you up and train you, but also teach you how to do neurofeedback. And I've not actually stopped doing that at this point in my career. I'm, I don't know, uh, 11 years in, and I'm still paying somebody every week to teach me how to do neurofeedback. If I told you all the individuals that I work through, you'd yeah. be angry because you'd feel like I'd stolen a lot of important people's time <laughs> that maybe you could have had. <laughs> and I've gotten in trouble for that in the past, which I might tell that story before the end. <laughs> um, but, but most people who I found admirable, I've garnered some regular time with them at some point. And, uh, and uh, that seems to be available. That seems to be something that you can just do. Uh, and I don't think that people realize that. There might need to be a little bit of a stepping stone where maybe you need to be a certain proficient in a certain way before you can work with certain people. It starts from working with somebody regularly and getting a foundational understanding of a particular modality. And, and then once you, you know, once that level of like distress, or I would say you know, the feeling of having homework, <laughs> once that's no longer present, you yeah. probably should keep looking for another person. <laughs> And then well, until, until that feeling comes back. <laughs> well, it's pretty cool. You got a partner that, you know, you're starting out in the same time and then you can do, uh, you can work on each other. Right. But like you said, uh, you, you have a philosophy on mentoring. What is that philosophy? Yes. Well, the philosophy on mentoring is, is to always just be mentored. Um, and this is something that happened before I joined the neurofeedback crew. Um, I had always had a mentor of some kind, whatever I was interested in or whatever I was doing. I pursued people who were smarter than me and, and uh, people who were further along than me in whatever I was interested in, whether it was something innocuous, like, you know, you might think pottery or something, but the idea is to find people that you want to model after uh, and to find people to admire. And so that you can build kind of a future template self for yourself uh, and something that you can work towards becoming. And I probably could articulate that a little better, <laughs> but you and, me, um, you and me both, you got I, any favorite <laughs> You, <laughs> that's why we got a podcast. You got yeah. any mentors you want to give a shout out that, oh, that have helped you that, that may well, want to I, get new clients? I don't know. You know, I've, I've had deep appreciation over the years for specifically Dr. Lisa Black, Santiago Brand, uh, Jay Gunkelman, Dr. Robert Coben. I could probably name a few more, but yeah. there's, there's individuals that I've met with on a regular basis here and there. Some of them were for a few months. Some of them were for a few years. <clears throat> but these individuals that... I don't know if we've ever used the word mentor or not, but these are just people I've met with regularly. And to me, in my head, these are people I'm trying to get as much as I possibly can from. And that's my definition of a mentor, whether or not they know it. Okay. <laughs> it might be a one-way relationship, but it works for me. Okay. <laughs> well, it's um, tough uh, watching those squiggly lines. You need another pair yeah. of eyes on there to see things that you can't see, right? Anybody that says they're an expert in this, run away, right? Right. Well, and, and again, if, if you have that feeling of like having homework on your back, like you did when you were in school, and if you're willing to pursue that feeling, like for the rest of your career, you, you'll never like, I still refer to myself as a beginner. And I'm not sure if that's ever going to go away as long as I'm chasing that sensation of having homework on my back. It just would feel really, really authentic to think of myself as 
as anything other than a beginner. And, and in some ways, I really, really am because um, I've only been doing this since 2009. And aspects of it are even newer than that because I wasn't, I wasn't coming at it as broadly as other people did when I first started in 2009. It's like what you say, you're jack of all trades, master of none. Right. Yeah. That comes from like, you know, spending a decent amount of time with like, uh, I've spent, I've met up with Kurt Othmer a handful of times as well and gone to a handful of Othmer workshops as well as gone to Mark Smith's workshops four or five times. And this is where that kind of interesting thing goes. Like if you're meeting with, you know, Jay Gunkelman and Kurt Othmer and Mark Smith, at some point, I uh, always reference the law of plenty, which I think is a, um, a, less, a less articulate but older principle that I think actually you can look up. Uh, but it's the idea that if we're all doing well, we'll all do better. And that we, we aren't actually going to do our best outcome if we're competing with each other. Um, and, and that is true with good startups, that, that if our competition is practicing healthy and is producing good results, they will garner uh, more public interest uh, for us than they would take. And that's, that's a simple explanation of it. And uh, so we should be kind of mentoring and helping our competition rather than maligning them or criticizing them. Um, you, you want to be mindful of like competition that might be doing a worse job than good job. You know, if they're actually like harming the industry, you know, that, that does deserve some like some consideration. Uh, which which is something that I'm kind of passionate about and concerned about. And now so, you, I, I have a note here: um, cautions around working outside our scope or causing effects outside our scope. Could you talk a little bit to that? Well, I, it's just something that, like, I think I think Jay used the term once when I was meeting with him, uh, and I, I looked it up and I couldn't find it, so I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yeah. Uh, and I, I didn't have time last night to find the study, but uh, he's he's mentioned a paper on I believe it was and someone's going to know this and I'm going to have said it wrong, atrogenic right. side effects or negative side effects from neurofeedback. And there was something like more than a dozen cases that were observed by a particular researcher uh, and gathered up and published together. And it kills me that I'm not remembering the researcher's name or the name of the study because on a better day I would. Uh, <laughs> but but it's, it's a fascinating paper to review and you might, if we track it down, we might put it in the uh, the comments or yeah yeah absolutely but there are some in there that are really intriguing to me about things like not wanting to train down low beta or mid beta that might be outside of a normal z-score uh, and there's some things like that which you can understand and some people understand as like oh this is compensatory if we take this away something bad could happen this person could get worse but there's other things like that that maybe that wasn't so commonly well known a while ago but there's there's actually still more that we're not yet talking about that i'm wondering if there should be talked about in a larger, I, I kind of tosses out to people who I think are smarter than me and have way more experience than me for sure. And they seem to respond positively. Like, let's say you have somebody who's showing with a lot of drowsiness. They're not presenting with a K complex before 300 seconds, you know, in their map. So they're not showing with a sleep. They're not showing with the need to be referred to a sleep lab, but, but they're showing with a lot of high beta. And so you want to train that down. Well, one thing that I've started doing was I started just giving them an oxygen monitor for one week before we start training. And sure enough, like a third of them are just crazy low in oxygen. I just send them back to their doctor and guess what? <laughs> the doctor ends up, you know, most of the time, send them to a sleep lab anyways. And they end up getting diagnosed with something like or sleep apnea anyways, even though they didn't produce the K-complex. Now, what would I have done 
if I had just trained down the beta. And, and my concern is that I would be eliminating the wakefulness drive that would be uh, waking them up during an apneic event. That's my concern. And it's like, are we concerned enough about that yet? Like, are we worried enough? I'm not mm -hmm. sure we're worried enough. <laughs> and it's like, okay, these oxygen monitors are not that crazy expensive. Um, and, and this right. is the concern I have is like, okay, what's within my scope to care about? How much, and this is, I don't have the answers to this, but how much do I need to worry about what I could be doing that could harm somebody? And I can't know everything I don't know, but some of these things I at least fuss over and I think I worry about, you know? So I'll go and I'll find, uh, let's see what I show you here. Yeah. Oh, I'll go. I'll go and I'll track down a few you know, like oxygen monitors like this, mm -hmm. you know? And I'll, I'll be very careful about what I say to the client, but I'll say, I just want you to wear this for a week. And then when, you know, we have a couple cases here and there, like maybe 30% of them or something like that show with half hour or more of oxygen in the 80s. I just go, let's, let's export this and have you send it to your doctor. I don't really say what I think that is. Not right. I just go, that's a little bit of a problem. Let's send it to your doctor and yeah. that gets taken care of. So. Interesting. Okay. And there wasn't so, anything that I was trained to see that as like, it wasn't something that I'm hearing other clinicians talk about. And I, I'm just worried about that stuff. That's all. <laughs> so why does the brain so, do what it does? <laughs> well, when, when a new client comes in, you're onboarding them and then they, they, you give them a symptom checklist, you give them a little yeah. questionnaire to fill out. Anytime you see those symptoms, you, you start with the, uh, the O2 monitor. Yeah. I, I think, I think if I'm, if I'm considering training down high beta centrally, yeah. uh, and I have, uh, you know, some drowsiness and daytime sleepiness, I just go ahead and give me O2 monitor before we start training because I don't want to destroy or eliminate or reduce a uh, wakefulness drive that might be compensatory and protective. And I think that's mostly what, what we could have larger discussions on is like what aberrant non-normal behaviors that are probably causing negative mental health effects might be here for valid reasons. And again, we're, we're just muddling around in the brain. Um, right. Do we even know why these things are here? <laughs> so do know? you give them a, do you give them an EEG to start out with everybody or it depends? Uh, these days, the vast majority of them. Yeah. Um, okay, but it. if I work with my dissociative patients, my DID patients, there's uh, I'd say most of them, we, we have to skip the QEG process because uh, there's some technical issues with getting consent with something that sure, sure. with the ID patient. <clears throat> what, what about if somebody says, hey, you know, I just want to do some uh, biofeedback training, give me some HRV. Do you still do the scan then? Or like, how, how does that work? You know, I've I, just had, I had it come up I, at, at, at my place and I'm like. I see, I see it more. I see more the other way around where people are, are, are coming to me who want to do the QEG um, and don't yeah. even know what neurofeedback is. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. more the other way around. And I'm like, why? Like, like we you know, usually we do the QEG so that we can decide, yeah, you know, what neurofeedback protocols to use. And they're like, what's neurofeedback? And I'm like, why are you here? Like, yeah, you know? the, the, the the wording is, I, yeah, and I'm bad at it. That's why I have other people talk for me. But we're not going to cure anything. We're not right. going to diagnose anything. Right. We're going to train, but when you see the results from the queue, comparing it to a database of brains that don't have the symptoms, 
Like, what is the wording? What do you tell the new people? Like you said, you know, what's neuro, they say, what's neurofeedback? How do you explain that to somebody? Yeah, I, it probably depends on what kind of person I think I have in front of me, whether it's yeah, like yeah. an engineer or you know, right, right. else. Might a, a, mom, a mom, a mom. Yeah, so uh, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. I got to get myself in the right headspace to try to explain right. that because I'm a little bit too technical. But neurofeedback, a lot of times I will tell the story of Barry Sternman and the cats. And, and part of it is, I think that telling that story, which is told fairly well, I think, in A Symphony of the Brain by Jim Robbins, um, that story does help people understand fairly well why it works. And I, I like just telling that story when I'm working with kind of a mom. Um, so they'll sit there and kind of scratch their head and be like, oh, okay, yeah, why would that do that? You know, why would monomethylhydrazine not uh, cause... So it's the, the rocket fuel and the cat seizures, right? Yeah, yeah. Why would 20% or 10 cats not 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 have epileptic you know events at these higher doses of, of rocket fuel you know they kind of kind for some people who don't know what i'm talking about are like i'm gonna have to read that that's a little bit of a weird what was that we're gonna there? put that <laughs> in the notes yeah, yeah. <laughs> and all right go yeah. read a symphony of the brain by jim robbins uh, it'll blow your mind <laughs> pardon the pun um, you know yeah yeah and then you know the, the the interesting thing you know as commented by uh you know kurt offmer uh cats don't have a placebo effect to that kind of study you know, we're talking about a placebo-free response, you know, to injecting rocket fuel into cats and the these groups having seizures and these groups not having seizures. And, you know, try to explain the placebo there with cats. You're not going to get it. There's none. You know, what would be 1964 is where we're at, date-wise? You know? <laughs> Give or take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you tell the mom about the cats and say, oh, okay. Hopefully the kid stays still so you get a good read. And the tech does a good job. Then you you, yeah. you you get the results. Then how do you explain it? Um, do you even say results? Yeah, I, I don't know if I use the word results. Yeah, um, but I, I I have probably some really technical words where uh, I'll say, well, we have neuromarkers that correlate with you know X Y Z. You know, we will say this correlates with uh, this finding. I see a lot of um, neuroinflammation. You know, and so I'll say things, and that's kind of what's on my brain right now, just because of a few that I had this week. Um, But I'll say, well, we've we've got this neuromarker that correlates with uh, some kind of neuroinflammation. And uh, I refer out a lot. I mean, a lot, a lot, a lot. I do way more. And that probably is why people come to me for the QEGs is because um, I'm not quick to keep people. And I'm very, very quick to go. I don't know what this is, but it might be something in this domain. Let's send you that way. And, and inevitably, because I know more than I'm letting on, and I know the more that I'm saying, um, right. they find the answers where I'm sending them, and they are really grateful, and they keep referring people to me just for these cues, <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> which, which is seemingly working. So, <laughs> so cl- a clue, a clue, a clue. Yeah, there's a clue. You know, so like, like for example, we get a really, really, really slow, 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 slow alpha waves in this person that's having some sort of oppositional defiance in a ten-year-old. And it's like, hey, you know, do you have any baby hair? You know, you might want to go get this tested with a functional integrative doctor. Uh, and sure enough, it's lead poisoning. <clears throat> you know, that's yeah, the yeah. answer. You know, they were sitting here doing psychiatric consults and parent, you know, family coaching and counseling. And they were just going just around and around and around and around on a hundred other things. And they were just getting so disoriented and confused because the kid, you know, looks mostly normal functioning, but really it's just, you know, his, his processing levels. Uh, assuming it's waffling, but it's really spending a lot of time really slow. And the parent-child difficulties are um, more indicative of 
inability to process and the frustration on the child's end of not processing well, rather than, you know, some sort of parent-child dynamic, which, which mm -hmm. they're, you know, kind of unintentionally being gaslit by everybody who's observing this, thinking like, yeah, it's something in the home. It's something between the parents and the kids. Like, mm, I don't know. Joshua, so, you brought up gaslighting and that comes up yeah. quite a bit. What is gaslighting? Yeah. Well, I, gaslighting, uh, you know, usually it's, in, it's considered an intentional behavior. Uh, and in this thing, I think I, what I referenced was more of an unintentional behavior by uh, other therapists. Gaslighting is when somebody tries to get another person to question their reality, which is kind of how it feels when you have a parent who's going like, no, we are, we're doing everything right. We're working so hard. And they're like, but you're not, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of a gaslighting thing when, when the parents are like, like, man, I was raised by good parents. I got good parenting skills from my parents. I've done parenting workshops. I go home and I'm very attentive. I'm very patient. And I apply these skills and they're just not working. This kid is struggling. And then they go and they're presenting to the psychologist and the psychologist is saying like, like the psychologist's assumption or belief or what they're projecting back towards the parents is, uh, it's still something in the home. It's still something that you're not resolving. It's still something on your end, which, which is, a, a, to be blunt, like as someone who's done a ton of, of, of play therapy, uh, you know, education and taught how to play therapy classes, like, it, it, it seems really easy and natural to assume <clears throat> that the, you know, uh, problem is coming from the parents, because <laughs> it usually is, but when it's not, you know, um, sometimes it looks the same, yeah, and that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the sad part, so, you know, you can't tell, the, you can always tell them apart. Do you get a lot of parents that come in with their kids in ADHD? Is that a big one or like, what, uh, do you, what do you see get, a lot? I don't get any simple cases. I mean, I, 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 Everybody's over, unique. I don't get any simple cases. But the uh, parents over, think it is. I do. Yeah. I went over to a university the other day, you know, I was just demonstrating at a university. And I remember I just mapped like some random student to demonstrate it uh, during a class. And, and it was like, you had like two neuromarkers uh, and everything else was normal except for two neuromarkers. And it was just like, whoa, I have never seen a case. Like it's been, it might've been years since I've seen a case this simple. <laughs> yeah, like, like it was like, almost forgot that they came this easy and simple. You know, like, I don't even know if I, what I would do if I saw this in my clinic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, and that was kind of really reorienting, you know, to me where, where I, I just don't, I think I only see people who have seen 10 doctors and 10 therapists basically. And, and you're I, the last I, one I they go to. Apparently, yeah. yeah. Uh, I take I take my maps to Santiago uh, regularly these days, and he he's always asking me, "Where do you find these people, Josh?" <laughs> so it's I so I know I have something to orient against. He he's he's saying that these these are, um, you know, we've we've got a lot of stuff going on here in the Northwest, apparently, and, yeah. and I've always felt that way. Um, but I do have some objective evidence that that might be true. Like like what? Uh, the fact that if I take everybody who's coming into my clinic and I give them over to Santiago and he's saying, these are all extreme cases. Where do you find these? That He'll say, I've never seen one this bad before. Santiago will say that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not a great thing. No, uh, I'm but, like, well, I, you know. <laughs> but you are in the Pacific Northwest. You, mm -hmm. you don't get a lot of sun or the, you get a lot of right. rain. So, Does that play in a role? I'm having the same questions in my head, by the way, Pete. That's a really yeah. great question. What is it here? Like, what is it exactly like? We're not, we're not doing like nuclear testing out here or anything, right? Like we're very like <laughs> that we know of. conscious, not that we know of exactly like, what is it? Um, and there's, there's nothing obvious. There just isn't. Um, now the Northwest and the West coast, my impression, I'm in the Midwest, I'm in the Chicago area. You guys are more progressive out there. More people are willing to go out there. And 
I mean, I, I believe you've told me stories where you you have a bunch of clinics on the same floor as yourself because there's so <laughs> much right, yeah. business out there. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any I particular? We, we had a we had a issue with the lease. Uh, they wanted to sell it to a school, so we ended up splitting up. So uh, we had I think we had like fifteen neurofeedback uh, practitioners in the same building for a while there, <laughs> and they weren't all in the same company. They're you know several a couple of different companies. And, and there was just no reason we didn't, we couldn't, we couldn't think of a reason not to work in the same space. It wasn't an issue. Um, but I mean, that's crazy. I can't, you know, if I get one in a five mile square block, it, you know, it, it, yeah. it's crazy over here. What do you well, think it, it is? Be, it might be a law of plenty and competition yeah. might, might be a very functional perspective, a way to orient yourself, you know, but I think that yeah. like, if you orient yourself like uh, competitively towards another neurofeedback clinic, I think that's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy and it's going to be, it's going to validate. You're going to feel competitive and you're going to need to feel competitive and it's going to always feel antagonistic. And, and that reality will feel valid if you live there. But, but there's another reality that you could live in that will also work. And that is the law of plenty and the cooperative attitude. And I think that reality does work. There's, we seem to have some evidence that it works. So, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I'm trying to find out what that evidence is. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, well. We, we when I started out here, I thought I was alone. I don't think I wasn't alone. Uh, it just turns out that uh, the people who were practicing out here were just crazy shy, and they still are. The people who have been here longer than me uh, don't really socialize much with me. And, I, and I, they're all, if they if they watch this, they're welcome to call me up and just get coffee and yeah, chat. Yeah, yeah. And I would love to yeah. talk, spend time with them. But I did most of my mentoring, mentoring and consulting over the phone. And eventually Zoom and Zoom became a little bit more accessible, but there just wasn't, there just wasn't anything to do. I remember calling Dr. Lisa every Friday, you know, that's kind of what yeah, I did yeah. for mentoring for a long, long, many, many years. And I thought I was the only person within like a hundred miles, you know, and, 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 and there was maybe two people who were out here, I think that I just didn't know about. We are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated. The creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, check it out. Applied Neuroscience is having a workshop September 10th and 11th in Florida, Madura Beach, Florida. Hey, two ways you can participate. You can attend the workshop or you can do it remotely through TeamViewer. Or click on the link here, appliedneuroscience.com slash attend-ng-workshops. Hey, check it out. Dr. Thatcher is inviting everybody that attends to his house for a cookout. Sign up now. It's going to be a blast. Woohoo! If you have any questions, email qeeg at appliedneuroscience.com. Join us. When people started learning and getting mentoring, I think I was motivated in not wanting to have my experience. I wanted them to uh, feel more connected and be able to ask questions and not like have some sort of face-to-face interaction or see somebody do it, you know, (laughs) something like that. And I think we got to start over culturally a little bit and kind of do it our own way, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could have a magic wand, what do you think it would take to get more adoption of neurofeedback couple couple stumbling blocks that are very simple is it's a cash only business because insurance doesn't pay very much for it insurance doesn't pay very much for mental health coverage in general you know what do you think it would take 
to get more adoption, number one, and then I guess to get adoption, you need somebody to pay for it, number two. What do you think it's going to take to more insurance companies to pay and get more people to ask for neurofeedback? Well, that you, you asked some, some, I can answer that in some ways, other ways, it's just way outside my experience. I yeah. Heard, I, I heard that Joy Lunt is advocating and, and lobbying on behalf of getting new CPT codes. And uh, I've not connected or made a connection with Joy Lunt because, uh, but that stuff is, is like uh, extremely uh, intense work. I know that Henry Kaiser from Kaiser Permanente, he owns the Neurofeedback Advocacy Project. He's out here in Portland and he hangs out with us all the time. And, and that's something that might, might do something someday that's interesting. He's, a, he's kind of a big name, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the more people, I've seen, I've seen him get more done in a casual email than I've done in like, you know, four months of work. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and so, so on some level, we need to get more talented people and more well-known people involved. And I think that time will do that. Like, yeah. like, like, like it has a little bit already. I, well, I said the, the usual stuff that comes up is it's, yeah. you know, we need to see more studies and more studies. It's yes. it's almost like everybody is trying to protect their own studies and their own research, their yeah. own, you know, yeah, and if there good. was some, some collecting point where we could have all this stuff. We got to get along a little bit more. It's not, needs to not be so, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. competitive. And there might be, there is, there is probably some pruning that needs to occur but we have to be really, really careful before we do that because we have to make yeah. sure that we're right before we do it. And, and I think it does require some investigation before we do that. Uh, and, and I said, it's just time is going to be our ally, I think. Yeah, yeah. As long as we're doing good work. I mean, that's, yeah. that's actually the biggest problem. If we're producing mediocre clinicians. <sighs> do, you think, do, you, do you think we need more standard, <laughs> more regulation on that to, to license it? Oh, you think? Uh, I don't know. That's a hard one <laughs> You asked me a political question just now. I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> All right. How about this? No, no. How about schools? I, I, I would rather plead than, than answer a political question. I'll plead, yeah. I'll plead, plead everyone do better. And, and maybe like social pressure. I'll go with social pressure. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about regulation, but I'm, I'm open to a good argument for regulation. I, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I would go with it, but I, yeah. but I, I would, I'll, I'll plead and beg for better. So standards. Yelp. We Yelp will rely Yelp. on Yelp. Yelp? I don't know. I don't know. Well, and, and again, I'm, 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 I'm just undecided on, yeah, on the yeah. philosophy of regulation. Not that I'm against it or for it. Okay. All right. We'll leave that one alone. What about schools? How do we, we need more techs, right? Yeah. Because uh, do you run into yeah. the same problem where you, you, you train a tech and they get, they get up to speed and then they either, they split to go start their own gig or they go work for somebody That's a else. That's too close to home, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have no idea. <laughs> well, four years, you're 11 years. So yeah. yeah. But then why don't um, more, how about the junior, I bring this up on every show. How about the junior colleges? You think they could have a little technical program where at least yes. you could. Sh- so, so I, I actually have a, a lovely, beautiful, small local university that I'm slowly working with that we're doing some neurofeedback research with probably starting in the fall. And they're, they're actually building an independent review board literally just for us that we can use to do research. Uh, we're going to propose after we publish a couple studies, we're going to propose doing some neurofeedback work with them in terms of education uh, down the road. I'm building some classes on my own for uh, my just local people. So yeah, I yeah. Account. You know, uh, not, nothing that I put out to the public or anything like that. I don't even think it'd show up on Google. <clears throat> um, yeah. But at some point, it'll be kind of a almost like a resume 
to offer the school and say like, hey, how would you feel about doing this? We've had some great results in research. Or we've done some cool stuff with research. How would you feel about building a tech program? And I, I, I suspect they'll be really interested down the road if, if, I, if I play it strategically. <clears throat> that's my hunch. I'm in on that. I might, you know, pitch in here in the Midwest to get that going. because I think yeah. that's something that we can do to help. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, I, I need a few more years before I'm ready to do that too. Like I'm, I'm still learning, but I'm, I'm but I'm probably also well. You can learning. never get there, but you do need, <laughs> we we do need more people with this skill because he can make a good hourly wage doing this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And when they have, like, people came to me making, you know, uh, you know, fifteen dollars an hour, and uh, a year and a half later making nineteen. Part of that was just training them as a tech and, and get him on their way. And right, um, right. You know, that's a pretty good advancement in a year and a half. <clears throat> hey, Joshua, can you tell us what are what are some of the side effects you've seen from uh, neurofeedback training and biofeedback training? Well, I mean, I, because I, first of all, I practice I, I, a lot of different types of neurofeedback modalities, like maybe 15, uh, more, more than you're probably thinking of. And some of them are more controversial than, than you'd expect. But I will say that, that the ones that I practice in my clinical practice, because I have more than one company, are the ones that you would expect. Does that make sense? Um, it doesn't mean I don't have companies that are more experimental and more for research or more for uh, low cost. Like I'll, we'll charge as little as $25 or $35 a session for something way simpler and, and, or, or way, way more experimental. And, and those are things that we're doing research on. I will hear, and I do see a lot of interesting side effects. And over the course of 11 years, you do learn how to navigate some of those side effects. But something is probably not both the placebo and going to hurt somebody. I, I hear that as an accusation more often than you'd expect of this is all fake and it's dangerous. Well, it needs to be one and not both. Like it really needs to, you need to decide. You can't say both of those, right. which, which I, I can't tell you how many times, like as a public speaker, uh, I've had that conversation with somebody who, who raised their hand and said something like that. And like, well, you, you should really pick one. Uh, it's either all fake or it's, or it's dangerous. Uh, you can know. can uh, I throw out three that I, I've seen and yeah. heard of, and you can dispel one seizure, two headaches, and then three memories come back and the patient breaks down and emotionally becomes uh, uh, unstable. The last one, because I'm a trauma therapist who works with the association, I see the last one a ton. Uh, But the difference is that if you're really, really scared, if you're really not scared, if you're really, really uh, skilled uh, trauma therapist and you work with dissociation a lot, you have gotten informed consent on that. And you know how to get containment for that. And that actually isn't a threatening situation for you. Uh, in, most the, in most of the cases, uh, the patient is doing the therapy, uh, knowing that their development doesn't make sense. And there's gaps and there's problems and everything's fractured and it doesn't work. And, and they want to put it back together. And they have given consent to put it back together. That's, that's most of the time. And that you, as a trauma therapist, uh, could see the fractures and saw this potentially coming. You weren't broadsided by it because you had enough experience to understand what you were looking at. And, uh, and then you were able to get informed consent from the patient about what may happen, not what was going to happen, but what may happen. And the side effects, again, uh, I think stereotypically are kind of assumed to be distressing, but that's actually not the case. Uh, a lot of times the ab reactions are somatic and they're distressing because they don't know that they're not supposed to be, or they don't know that they don't have to be. Um, that especially if you're doing something like alpha theta, for example, there, 
they're, they're mostly distressing if the therapist is distressed. And that's actually kind of the, the, the deep little dirty secret is like, if you are like, fantastic, it's working, you're doing great, then they will actually feel really positive. <laughs> it's, it's a hypnagogic therapy. <laughs> like like you, you have to tell them how to feel about it and they will feel that way. It, it really does work that way. Like, like it's a pat yourself on the back and I, it's working kind of thing. Now that's not going to work 100% of the time and 100% of our reactions related to memory retrieval, but it works way more than you suspect, especially with uh, you know, an alpha theta protocol. And again, there's a lot of pieces that I'm not going over. You need to be a trauma specialist with trauma training. Okay. Don't skip that part. Okay. (laughs) Um, But, but, but if you have that covered, which is not a small part, you can uh, oftentimes offer them containment and a lot of times orient them towards the positive outcome, you know, that they're seeking is, is putting this back together. And this is, this is what they, this is, this is that. And these somatic sensations that are odd and weird more than anything else that's the most common way that they define them is evidence of them succeeding in this goal uh, and they should just simply pat themselves on the back and move forward and they do exactly that it's the apprehension of the therapist that gets them very very triggered and uh, i think that that's not explained often enough <laughs> so I see that so much. Um, and, and I think this is a little controversial and I gotten a lot of flack for this, especially yeah. way back in like uh, 2014 or 15. And after yeah. that, it kind of cleared up a little bit, but, but I will like have a little monitor uh, to connect with them, but I don't stay in the room during alpha theta uh, because, and again, I got a lot of flack for this in the early years and not so much these days, but yeah. you know, they're in a vulnerable kind of hypnagogic state um, you know, you being present for that does change the process. You want to be available, but you don't want to be watching somebody. <laughs> like, you right, know? right, 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 right. Okay. And so, uh, you know, being right outside the door with a monitor, I think works a lot better. And, and I think people, now that's not true about everybody. I've had patients, it's a discussion before I go. Yeah, yeah, I've had yeah. a few patients request that I stay because I was incredibly, I represented safety for them. You know, and so that the feeling of being safe, you know, was 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 more prevalent with me being present. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it discussion. makes total. Yeah, it's a discussion. I mean, have you ever seen a seizure, or uh, I'm sure you've seen headaches, but oh, you get headaches and things like that for different reasons. You know, um, I had a patient who uh, I think it's called PNES, a psychogenic seizure. They had one when they were uh, doing a brain map, and of course it wasn't a seizure, <laughs> you know? And so, but that was really nice because, you know, you have neurologists who are trying to rule out whether or not this patient has epilepsy. And it's like, <laughs> you know, I have, right. a, a, you know, I have a QEG or EG raw data of them having a seizure. And it's like, take a look at this. I'm like, yeah, it's not. Nope. But, but, but <laughs> yeah. what I'm saying is when you're doing the actual training to cause a seizure, have you ever seen that or heard of that? I just heard of it yeah, in training yeah. when I was learning, but yeah. You know, thank goodness I haven't I haven't seen anything that induced a seizure. Um, and there have been a lot of people that come in with histories of seizures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I think. But that's I what think, I've heard. That's the worst thing that could happen. And sure, sure. It's and, a and rare. Not, I might not be thinking critically enough. Like I yeah, have, yeah, yeah, I have, yeah. I have like really, really young clients that have sometimes like thirty seizures a day or something like that. And they're like, yeah, yeah. well, if we're doing some sort of uh, uh, training where we're optimizing the frequency bands and, and like, yeah, okay. So maybe they 
we make an adjustment and there's there's a, a reaction they seem to have a seizure so we move away from that it's hard to know if that was from us or not because yeah. the trend is that they might be having 30 a day um and so a little bit vague yeah. uh you know well uh, joshua the fourth like, one is uh getting that paste in your hair the paste what's that <laughs> what do you mean no no sorry. <laughs> the, <laughs> the 10 20 paste in your hair yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, and that's the thing about kids with seizures, especially these kids that have like 30 seizures a day, you know, they'll have a seizure from a loud noise. They'll have a seizure from the paste in the hair. You know, you, 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 wow. you can, you, you'll overstimulate them if you do this and they'll, they'll get a seizure from that. And so, yeah. you know, it's, it's hard to, to really know what's from what. And so uh, when I think about someone having a seizure from treatment, I'm thinking about not those sensitive cases. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm thinking about something a little bit more, yeah, a little bit more yeah. obvious. You know, neurofeedback does seem to cause a lot of interesting, truly interesting side effects. Um, I don't know if you've ever had Dr. Robert Coben on the, the podcast here, no. but I, I'd recommend it. Um, okay. You know, I've, I've had kids who had really, really, really interesting, problematic, uh, odd issues, which if we were wanting to go over a QEG, I could go tentatively go get a release and 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 bring a really interesting case study on here yeah i'm sure they i'm sure they'd be okay with it and yeah. jay could talk about it nothing i did with this kid uh went well i he wouldn't he, he had poor reactions to <laughs> smr training <laughs> he had poor reactions to everything imaginable nothing i did was good we ended up moving towards multivariant coherent training with dr Robert coben and that worked it was like it was like attempt number eight by the way we tried like eight different modalities <laughs> wow. Uh, and it was, it was gentle and efficient and it got at the mechanism that we had an issue with. And, and I'm extremely grateful, you know, to, to find that tool in the toolbox and, and to use it with this kid. Uh, and he responded very poorly, very quickly to everything, absolutely everything. You know, the multivariant coherence training seems to be so far, and, and I haven't used it a ton. I've used it maybe a dozen times the least dramatic thing, you know, that I've been able to use. Right. <laughs> uh, but other than that, like, it's, you, you just can't say, oh, this is never going to cause problems. You just can't say that. Right. And, and there are absolutely distributors that, that make that claim all the time. I'm not going to call them out, but it's yeah. just, just crazy what they claim. And it's like, okay, well, if you use this for, you know, two or three months, you're going to find out it's not true if you're paying any attention at all. You know, and, and then the recommendations for uh, some distributors, you know, is just keep training. And it's like, uh, no. I, I, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> you gotta, I hear you. You got to shift gears. You got to do something else. That's right. You got to do something else. Okay. Unless you know exactly what that is yeah. and why keeping going is correct. Right. And, you need to right. Be, and you need to be right if you're going to do that. You need to be absolutely right. You need to be, you need to be, no, you need to be so sure that you're betting your license against it. And I wouldn't do that. So. <laughs> right. No. Anybody with one, that's kind of why I like the regulations. If you got a license, because if you have a bad actor, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. whatever. We'll, so, I, I do see a lot of interesting stuff. As I just said, I work with, with what seems like a really unusual, disproportionate, difficult case population. Yeah. Um, and I think with the level of complexity, you're going to get tough responses. I had a case the other day with the OCD. Um, variable, uh, OCD symptoms, kind of a slow anterior cingulate. And it was an elephant to the room. Hey, this is a OCD kind of neuromarker with OCD symptoms. This is it. Long story short, it ended up being 
the mid-temporal sharp so transients kind of hitting his insula was causing the OCD. And so suppressing that cingulate didn't do anything for him. It was gone. We redid the QEG, you know, the cingulate theta is flattened out and he doesn't feel better. And so we start mulling it over a little bit and we start looking closer at those mid-temporal sharp so transients and sure enough, they're hitting his left insula and we're like, ah, what if that's, what if that's what's causing the OCD? Yeah. And uh, sure enough, it was, you know, as soon as we treat those, he, he, two minutes later in the chair, he's melting and he goes, oh, I feel way better. That's, that's, that's the one you got it. <laughs> and there's, again, like, that's, that's the problem with complexity. It's like, you, we don't understand how it all weaves together. We keep mm -hmm. talking about this, you know, another yeah. podcast with, you don't really understand how it all weaves together. I can't, I can't see how it all weaves together. <laughs> well jo joshua moore again thank you for coming back on the show number one thank you for your continued support number two please keep us up to date on what's going on with the school that you're working with and the research sure. that you're coming up with uh happily th thank you th thank you so much thanks pete Thank you all for watching Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters. We are supported by listeners and businesses just like you, like our gold supporter, Applied Neuroscience Incorporated, the creators of NeuroGuide, the premier EEG assessment and training software whose demo version can be downloaded from the link here. Hey, check it out. Applied Neuroscience is having a workshop September 10th and 11th in florida madura beach florida hey two ways you can participate you can attend the workshop or you can do it remotely through team viewer or click on the link here applyneuroscience.com slash attend dash ng dash workshops hey check it out dr thatcher is inviting everybody that attends to his house for a cookout Sign up now. It's going to be a blast. If you have any questions, email QEEG at AppliedNeuroscience.com. Join us. Hey, thanks to our silver supporters, Mary Tracy's awesome QEEG training program at EEGStrategies.com and My Media's Nexus EEG Amplifier. Welcome aboard, Erwin. They're at MindMedia.com. Three things our listeners can do to help us spread the word of neurofeedback. Number one, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Number two, give us a review on whatever platform you listen to. Five stars is appreciated, but Jay Gunkelman will accept four and a half. Hey, if you have the means, please support us on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. There are different levels in which you can support us, whether you're a mom or dad or a clinician. There's even an option where you can have your own Q&A with our own Jay Gunkelman. This support help, helps us improve the quality of our content. Hey, trying to get these video edits even better, even better. 